0: Hi, I'm Cam, and I'm Dev, and you're listening to Criminalish, a true crime podcast where two best friends trade stories ranging from the wild and wacky to the downright messed up. listening to the criminalish podcast want to hear more from cam and dev then consider becoming a subscriber for 2.99 a month subscribers will have exclusive access to minisodes dev and cam's live reactions to crime shows and documentaries as well as early access to any multi-part episodes and so much more click the link in the description if you're interested in subscribing see y'all in cell block c so as we mentioned in our last episode Before we start getting into the story, we'll be checking in with each other to see what we're drinking. So what are you drinking, friend? So I had a few too many margaritas on Friday and a few too many mimosas at brunch on Sunday. So I am drinking good old water today, friend. A couple of hydrogens and an oxygen is all I got. I love that for you. I am actually on a break from alcohol for the month of May, just to do a little reset. So I am enjoying a nice warm cup of Tazo tea. It is their glazed lemon loaf flavor, one of their dessert flavors. I really enjoy it. And yeah, that is what I will be enjoying for this episode today. So before I get into today's story, I want to extend a couple of trigger warnings. So while these are not a primary part of the case, I will be mentioning murder and the death of a child. That being said, this story is pretty light, especially compared to what we've discussed in the past few episodes. So with all of that, Dev, today I will be telling you the story of the Gardner Museum heist. Have you heard of this before? I have not, but it sounds really interesting. I'm very curious about this. Yes, it's a really interesting case, and it's actually pretty infamous, especially up north, which is where it takes place. It takes place in Boston, Massachusetts, which, if our listeners don't know, is actually where I am based. So, I've heard about it a couple times before I actually sat down and did the research for this case. To get started, I'm actually going to go into a little bit of background into Isabella Stewart Gardner, who was the woman who actually founded the museum. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840, into a pretty upper class family. Being from an upper-class family, Isabella was privately educated in New York and finished her education abroad in Paris. There, one of her classmates introduced her to her brother and the man who would become Isabella's future husband, John Lowell Gardner Jr., who also went by Jack. Isabella and Jack married in 1860 in New York City. So, After their marriage, they moved to Boston, which was Jack's hometown, and they settled in an area called Back Bay on Beacon Street. And for our listeners, Back Bay is a super nice area in Boston. There are a bunch of super nice, super expensive houses there. So reading that, it was not surprising that they settled in that area. Three years after marrying, they had their first son, John Gardner III. However, he sadly died of pneumonia before he even reached the age of two years old. Of course, this had a very negative effect, very depressing effect on Isabella. In 1867, to help with the depression that she was experiencing, Jack took Isabella to travel around Northern Europe and Russia, and this was actually based on the advice of her doctor, who said that this would help with her depression. And this was the first of many travels that they had. And as somebody who loves traveling, I understand catching the travel bug. Once you go once, you have to go again. Absolutely. Now that I'm actually starting to travel, and especially now that I have plans to travel outside of the U.S., I don't ever want to stop, which is really inconvenient for, you know, working full time. Yeah. And you could tell Isabella was having a great time on these travels, especially because she would keep a detailed journal of everywhere that she went. And so in addition to travel... Isabella was also interested in the intellectual side of Boston and Cambridge. In 1878, she attended the readings of a Charles Eliot Norton, who was the first professor of art history at Harvard. After attending this reading, he invited her to join the Dante Society, which is a society that promotes the study and appreciation of the time, life, works, cultural legacy of Dante Alighieri. I might have messed that name up. Don't talk about me if I did. And Dante Alighieri was a famous Italian poet. And after joining the society, she began collecting rare books and manuscripts from Dante. In 1884, Isabella and Jack traveled to the Palazzo Barbaro. And do not talk about me if I'm messing up this Italian. I don't speak Italian. But Isabella and Jack traveled to the Palazzo Barbaro, which was a palace in Venice owned by a Bostonian couple and was actually a gathering place for many American and English people who were interested in art. And this became a major source of inspiration for Isabella later on when she was creating and curating the pieces for her museum. In 1886, Isabella met Harvard student Bernard Barenson, And I'm gonna be honest, this is not relevant to the case at all, but he was kind of fine, especially for a man in the late 1800s. Dev, I'm gonna I'm send you a picture of him just so you can see what I'm talking about here. So, yeah, I'm sending you this photo now, Dev, and look at, look at this man. Not relevant to the case at all, but I just have to commend him for looking the way he did in the late 1800s. Okay, curls. Because people from that time period be looking like struggle. Oh, absolutely. But no, he, he's giving curls, he's giving lashes, he's giving strong jawline. He's given the lead character of a romance novel. He's very much giving lead character of romance novel and not like a toxic love story romance novel, like an actual romance novel. (laughs) Exactly. But Isabella met this Bernard Berenson and originally she and some others in the Boston art circle, the Boston art scene had given Bernard some funds, which he planned to use to pursue a literary career in Florence. However, after getting there, he actually discovered a passion for Italian Renaissance art and shifted to become a connoisseur of Italian Renaissance art. I would definitely say the Italian Renaissance was also one of my favorite eras that I researched and studied in school. I just found it so interesting and different. It was really cool. It was really cool to look at it and study and see what people did. Exactly. It's beautiful to look at, too. You're much more creative minded than I am. But even as somebody who's not as creative minded, just looking at the art, it's really breathtaking, especially seeing how they've maintained the quality of a lot of these works over time. And we're looking at something that is very close to what it looked like when it was created hundreds of years ago. I find that super fascinating. Don't say yourself short, friend. I'm selling you long that's not a term that's not a phrase but that's my response (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate that i appreciate that (laughs) but bernard switched over into being a connoisseur of italian renaissance art is how he ended up becoming isabella's chief art advisor and was actually an integral part of acquiring many of the masterpieces that she had in her collection. Some of these were a self portrait of Rembrandt at the age of 23 and other famous artworks. And he was able to acquire these for really good prices. If you're listening, you don't know who Rembrandt is. This is not gonna make any sense to you and you're not gonna care, but that is such a big deal. My, oh my God, my, <laughs> my art nerd heart is fluttering right now i'm s- <laughs> the the art nerd in me is so happy <laughs> you're gonna be really sad later. I will tell you that oh no <laughs> and for our listeners who are like I thought I was listening to a true crime podcast, not an art history podcast. I promise you it will all come together. I think this background is really important to set the stage of why the heist that we'll talk about later was such a blow to the museum and to Isabella Gardner's legacy. But continuing with some of the history and background, in December of 1898, Jack Gardner, Isabella's husband, unfortunately suddenly died of a stroke. Jack and Isabella had a plan to purchase a plot of land in an area called the Fens This is actually now known as Fenway in Boston. And six weeks after Jack's passing, Isabella decided to continue with this plan. So she purchased this plot of land that they had been looking at and hired a local architect to draw up plans for the museum. Yes, carry on the legacy. Mm Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Fenway is a really popular area in Boston right now, but at this time, there were almost no other buildings in this area. So to me, it was very interesting that Isabella and Jack chose this plot of land specifically. So construction on the museum began in 1899 and was completed late 1901. After the construction was completed, Isabella moved into private living quarters on the fourth floor and devoted all of her time to personally arranging the works of art on the first three floors. And for the rest of her life, she was heavily involved in the acquisition and installation of all of the works of art at the museum. So on January 1st, 1903, the museum opens and they had a grand opening celebration. I know everybody who was somebody in the city of Boston and probably in New York throughout the Northeast was at that grand opening. They had a performance by members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and an unveiling of the Interior Courtyard Garden. Dev, I'm going to send you another picture of what the Interior Courtyard Garden looks like. It is so beautiful. Not an orchestra. Not the whole orchestra. Yes, the whole Boston Symphony Orchestra. They said if we're going to do it, we're going to do it big. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, they had all the who's who's up in the Garden Museum. So, yeah, I just sent you the picture of the interior courtyard garden so you can see how beautiful it is. Oh, my God. That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. Also, for our listeners who don't know, I got an undergraduate degree in landscape architecture. So... Again, this story is speaking to every facet of my being because we have art history, we have landscape history, we have architectural history. This story is speaking to everything I love. This is gorgeous. The variety of plants, the color combinations, the textures against this wall color. Oh, it's everything. And then this plaza, this little plaza. I won't break this down. As a landscape architect, because y'all really don't want to hear it because I could gush over this one single photo for 15 minutes. But just know it's gorgeous. Dev gonna start another podcast just for that. (laughs) (laughs) Just just for my landscape Um, architecture input. And for our listeners, we will be posting these photos on our Instagram at criminalish podcast. So go over there if you'd like to check out what dev is gushing over. And so yeah, the grand opening was amazing. Everybody was of course in love with what Isabella had created for this museum. Not only did people come there to peruse all of the amazing artworks that she'd acquired, the museum would also hold concerts, lectures, and exhibitions. So it was really a central gathering place for Boston's art society, Boston's elite art scene. So, sadly, Isabella suffered a stroke in 1919 and died five years later in 1924. In her will, she left an endowment to operate the museum, but this endowment stipulated that nothing in the museum could be changed and nothing could be acquired or sold from her collection. Specifically, she stated that if anything were to be permanently changed, All of its contents would be crated, shipped to Paris, and auctioned, and the remaining endowment money would be donated to Harvard. Okay. She said, you will not mess with my stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love it. She said, I put this work in for a reason. I did it right the first time. (laughs) So this brings us to the early hours of March 18th, 1990. When a vehicle pulls up to the side entrance of the Isabella Gardner Museum and two men dressed as policemen get out and push the museum buzzer, they tell the security guard that they are responding to a disturbance and ask the guard to let them in. The guard, a man named Rick Abbott, stepped away from his desk to let them in through the employee entrance. And him stepping away from the desk was actually breaking museum protocol, but Abbott was actually a bit newer to the job. And them being policemen, I'm sure he thought, okay, it's more important for me to let them in than to follow the protocol. So after being let in, they asked Abbott if he was there alone and Rick Abbott tells them that he has a partner who was currently out on a round. They ask Rick to call his partner down and then say to both of the men, gentlemen, this is a robbery. These two men dressed as police officers, then handcuffed and tied up both guards in the basement. So I'm sure y'all are wondering how were these guards not trained to deal with this kind of situation? And I will say, one of these guards had never worked the night shift before and had even brought his trombone, presumably to practice. So that tells me that these guards were probably like, nothing is going to happen. We're just here to make sure nothing crazy happens. So I'm sure that they were not expecting anything like this. Their guards were super down. They were not being perceptive. They were not expecting anything like this to happen. Were they at least held at gunpoint? Like, how How did you just allow two men to cuff you and tie you up and put you in the basement? Yeah, I believe they were They were held at gunpoint. When they said, gentlemen, this is a robbery, I'm assuming it was them pointing a the gun at them saying, gentlemen, this is a robbery. Okay, because I was about to say, nothing they just walked in and shook hands and said, all right, her, sir, I'm here to rob you. Go ahead and get in the basement. Why don't you? (laughs) I can see that happening in the Midwest. Honestly, that sounds like some Midwestern robbery stuff. No, absolutely. Good day, sir. I would just like to rob your museum. After handcuffing the guards and placing them in the basement, the thieves then moved throughout the museum to begin their heist. And because the museum had motion detectors, a lot of their movements were actually recorded. And so the investigators were able to tell where they were going in the museum. They stole many of their pieces from what is called the Dutch Room, which held many well-known works of art, including a couple of pieces from Rembrandt. After hitting the Dutch Room, they went on to what is called the Short Gallery, where they stole more valuable art, including five Degas drawings. Then they went on to the Blue Room, where they stole a Manet. They also apparently tried to remove a silk flag from Napoleon's 1st Regiment of Imperial Guard, but they were unsuccessful in this attempt. So the thieves departed at 2.45 a.m. after being in the museum for a total of 81 minutes, meaning they got there around 1.24 a.m. and made two separate trips to their car with the artwork. Before leaving, they also swiped the museum's security VHS tape. And if you don't know what VHS is, you might be too young to be listening to this. They don't know nothing about that, Fran. I barely know something about that. So I know if, if you at least three years younger than me, you might not know anything about that. I'm sitting here so sick because my, again, my artist's heart was so happy and now my artist's heart is so sad. Today, the works of art that they stole are valued around $500 million. To just hit some of the pieces that they took, they stole Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. They also stole Rembrandt's Self-Portrait, Rembrandt's A Lady and Gentleman in Black, Vermeer's The Concert, Flink's Landscape with an Obelisk, those five Degas drawings that I mentioned earlier, and Manet's Chez Tortoni. Super valuable works of art that Isabella had spent so many years of her life, so much of her time acquiring and specially placing in the museum. Back to the story. At 7.30 a.m., the morning guard, Karen San Gregory, arrived to relieve the night watch. And she presses the museum buzzer to have the night guards let her in. However, when there was no response, she then called the head of security at the time, sensing that something might be wrong. After arriving, the head of security took them both around the back door, and as soon as they stepped in, they knew that something was not right. The security cameras were turned off, the office door had been busted, and there was a crowbar leaning against the wall. So the head of security, not knowing whether the thieves were still in the museum at the time, handed the crowbar to Karen and they crept through the museum looking for the night guards, but also trying to watch their backs just in case the thieves were still there. Once they realized that they were gone, the chief called the Boston police and was only able to say, I'm calling from the gardening museum and we've got big trouble. The guards actually remained handcuffed until the police arrived at 8.15 a.m., so they were tied up for nearly seven hours. So now on to the investigation. In the immediate aftermath of the robbery, the museum offered a $1 million reward for any information leading to the safe recovery of these works of art. So suspicion was, of course, immediately on the guards, but they both claimed innocence. And that's kind of understandable because you did such a terrible job that I'm sure the police were like, how were you not in on this? Yeah, and I hate to be that person, but people have been killed for less in heist. And you guys are still alive after people just stole millions, millions and millions of dollars worth of art. I know that might be a very messed up thing to say, but it's, Yeah, I mean, that's very true. Like in bank robberies and museum heists, you see that usually the security guards are killed instead of being tied up. But the fact that these guards were left alive and for the most part untouched, aside from being left tied up for hours, definitely gave the police pause and gave the community pause. I will say one of the guards, Rick Abbott, was tied up in a very interesting way. And so, Dev, I'm going to send this picture to you, and I want you to describe how he was duct taped. Oh, Jesus. That's nightmare fuel. I don't like that. How would you describe that? This might sound messed up, but I'm going to describe this as like Texas Chainsaw Massacre mask out of duct tape is how I would describe this. And so Rick has really long curly hair, and the duct tape is tied like around his face as well as across his nose his mouth is open it looks like his eyes are mostly covered by his hair and the duct tape but I've never seen somebody tied up like this this was very strange I'm not sure what they were doing I don't even know what this would do because I'm looking at this and I'm like do you not want him to scream? You can't not want him to scream because his mouth is not taped over. It's just like tape under. Do you not want him to see? Well, you didn't really close his eyes. You just forced his hair in front of it. And that doesn't really do anything. Did you not want him to breathe easily because you covered his nose for some reason? And it looks like you folded it on every side. I'm just, I'm just confused. I'm, I'm very perplexed by this image. And that was one of the perplexing things about this case. So, as I said, in the immediate aftermath, the museum offered a $1 million reward. Seven years later, the heist had still not been solved. These works had still not been found. So they then raised it to $5 million. And today, these works of art have still not been recovered and the people responsible for the robbery have still not been found. There's currently a $10 million reward for any information leading to the safe recovery of these works of art. That is insanity to me. And not to be that person, but $10 million, when you're looking at pieces of artwork that are half a billion dollars, (laughs) is not a lot. And quite frankly, I don't think it's enough for anybody to sell anybody up the river. Now, granted, I'm not saying that the museum needs to fork over half a billion dollars for the safe return of this artwork. But if I'm holding on to one piece of artwork that's worth 15 million, your little 10 million is not gonna do anything for me. Exactly. And you know what's funny but not funny? I was watching a different show and it was kind of the same idea of like, oh, these people stole this expensive artwork. And he, like, gave it to his, like, ailing grandmother and, like, hung it in her bedroom. And she just thought it was, like, this gr- this beautiful piece of artwork from her grandson. And it was worth millions of dollars and he had stolen it. <laughs> it's, like, it's really making me think of what if the artwork is just, like, hanging in somebody's great-grandma's house and the grandma just thinks it's worthless. That's insane and that hurts so much because... Again, as an art person, as somebody who expresses themselves creatively through artwork, so much history is built into art. And I think more history than people would like to give credit for in a lot of ways. These works of arts, these landscapes, these depictions of God, these depictions of were the building blocks of what we find beautiful and artistic and creative today. And to have those things just lost to history because somebody just Broke in, shook an officer's hand and was like, I'm going to rob you now, it is so upsetting. <laughs> yeah. While the museum is offering a $10 million reward for any info leading to the safe recovery of these stolen works of art, one of the pieces that was stolen was a Napoleonic eagle finial. And there is actually a separate $100 million reward for the return of this piece. So there is a lot of money being offered for any info, but if that reward is $100 million, then I'm sure the actual piece is worth more than that. And so if somebody is already a criminal and is related to this crime, I'm sure that they might not think it is worth it to give any information. And today, the museum actually has empty frames hung up as placeholders for these stolen works of art and they symbolize the hope that one day they'll be returned. That's so sad. I mean, I definitely love the symbolism. It just sucks that, you know, dude. It's been thirty-three years. Yeah. Look, Sharon got him. Maybe, yeah, maybe Sharon got him. That's how she funded her uh, her prison break. Miss Sharon done funded her prison break. Miss Sharon is sitting on a beach, looking at that admiring Rembrandt self portrait, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But with that, let's get into some of the theories. So, of course, people are like, how did this happen? One, these people obviously had planned this out and they knew something about art. They knew something about these pieces they were taking for them to be so valuable. So at the time of the robbery in the 1990s, late 1980s, Both the Irish mob and the Italian mafia were powerful groups in Boston, and many believed that the fine art that they had stolen could have been used as a get-out-of-jail-free card. This would not be the first time that this would have happened. Actually, in 1975, a New England criminal and art thief named Miles Connor stole a Rembrandt and eventually used it to bargain for a lighter prison sentence. You might be thinking, was Miles Connor part of this? He was actually in prison at the time of the robbery and denied any involvement in the heist. However, he did claim that he'd previously cased the museum with someone named Bobby Donati, who was an associate of another crime family. While Donati was killed in 1991, some theorized that if he participated in this crime, it was either to get his boss, Vincent Ferrara, out of prison or to guarantee the mob's safety from the police so along with this miles connor theory another one of his associates a man named william youngworth actually claimed that he was a caretaker of many of connor's stolen works of art and actually saw some of the stolen pieces from the garden museum he called a reporter to tell them this and actually took them to a warehouse in Brooklyn where he claimed the pieces were. So William Youngworth told this to a reporter and took the reporter to a warehouse in Brooklyn where he claimed the stolen works of art were being held. And he shined a flashlight on what he claimed was one of the stolen Rembrandts. He shined the flashlight on where Rembrandt's signature should have been, but After doing this, he quickly pushed the reporter out and didn't really give an explanation to this. So because this was so quick, the reporter was not able to verify the validity of this claim. And even after speaking with experts and describing what he saw, they still could not verify the authenticity of the painting. And I don't believe the reporter was able to navigate back to this warehouse or they were able to find it again. Is Homeboy still alive? Because last time I checked, the mob kills people for less. So So he was an associate of somebody who was an associate of the mob. In addition to this art thief slash Irish mob slash Italian mafia theory, it was also theorized that since the Irish mob was pretty active, and that many of these Irish American criminals were working closely with the Irish Resistance Army, which was active in Ireland, to smuggle arms, that the stolen art could have been used as currency to pay for weapons, since art was easy to smuggle and use as international currency. I don't know what this says about the theory, but a former IRA press officer claimed that these 13 paintings would not have even been of interest to the IRA because at that time, they were apparently doing very well on funds and would not have needed it. However, I'm sure that if they had stolen them, they would have said that. So I don't know how much we should take this former press officer's word. I'm not personally giving him a lot of weight, but that might just be me. Another theory was that this was the work of a wealthy art collector who just wanted the art to themselves and hired people to steal it. In all honesty, that's kind of where my brain was at in thinking this is just one person who curates works and just wanted to harbor them. That's definitely what I thought. So those were kind of the theories that were going around the town and in the art society. But of course, the Boston police were not the only organization involved in investigating what happened. The FBI also got involved. And they actually zeroed in on a crime ring that was being supervised by a mob associate named Carmelo Merlino. The sister-in-law of one of Merlino's associates, a man named George Reisfelder, claimed that she had actually helped hang the Monet in his apartment, but at that time was unaware of its origin and the heist. And interestingly enough, it is believed that Reisfelder And another member of Marlino's gang, a man named Leonard DiMuzio, resembled police sketches of the fake officers. So I'm going to send you a picture of this and you tell me if you think that they look like the police sketches. It's the way they got one man in the dang police hat. (laughs) The problem is these sketches are so non-specific. Like, I feel like I've seen three of these men today. You know? Exactly. That's my thing. I'm like, technically, yes, they do look like them. Right. They also look like every third white man walking down the street. And especially every third white man walking down the street in Boston at the time. Oh, absolutely. So I so I will say they look like them, but not in the way that the sketch looked just like Timothy Hennessy from the last episode. Because that was his twin right there. Yeah, these are... Especially because here's the, I think the big things too, just throwing me off is like, of course, men can uh, can shave their mustaches and everything. But the fact that one guy has no mustache, these noses are two completely different shapes. It's got the essence of the real person, but it's not giving the real person. And I'm a little disappointed by the quality of these sketches based on the fact that you had two separate eyewitnesses to the robbers. I would expect these sketches to be a little bit better, a little more thorough, because Patrick put out a sketch from 50 feet away that was more thorough than this. I agree. I definitely agree there. So while these sketches did resemble these two men, this lead did not go anywhere. They were not able to definitively link Merlino or any of his associates to the museum heist or any of the stolen works of art. The next suspect that the FBI had was a man named Bob Garanti. However, he became a key suspect after his death in 2004 when his wife claimed that he'd handed off some of the art. And she claimed that he'd handed off some of the art to a man named Bobby Gentile, who was a career criminal in Connecticut. That name sounds so familiar. And maybe it's because I feel like every crime boss show has a italian man is named bobby exactly has a bobby gentile like bobby gentile specifically sounds just like a criminal ass name i'm so sorry if your name is bobby gentile (laughs) but you just sound like you commit crimes friend you need to go by robert you need to go by robert (laughs) or rob even bob gentile doesn't have the same ring to it as bobby (laughs) it's something about bobby (laughs) Yeah, Bobby is very much um, Italian mafia slash Irish mob. However, just as with the last lead, they were unable to find anything definitively linking either of the men to the heist or the stolen works of art. And the FBI stipulates that the artwork might have been moved through organized crime circles to Philadelphia, where it was likely offered for sale but their trail went completely cold in 2003. So in March of 2022, very recently, there was actually an update in the case. Boston police found new clues linking the 1991 cold case murder of Jimmy Marks to the Garden Museum heist. So a little bit of background here. In February of 1991, 11 months after the heist, Jimmy Marks was shot while unlocking the front door of his apartment in Lynn, Massachusetts. And for context, Lynn is about 30 minutes from where the museum was and from Boston. The person who shot him had unscrewed the light bulb above the door to make sure that he couldn't see them coming. And this was apparently a classic mob style hit. A tipster told Boston police that days before Jimmy Marks' death, Jimmy was bragging about owning two of the stolen paintings and that he'd been involved in hiding some of the stolen works. Jimmy, you should know better. Mm Mm-hmm. Marks also apparently told his niece, for context, his niece is 26, not a little girl, that he, quote, had something big coming up and wasn't sure if he was going to do it, end quote. Marx was also very friendly with a fellow member of the mafia that we recently mentioned, Mr. Bob Garante, who, as I said, was a prime suspect in this case. And in 2015, Bob Garante's widow, Elaine Garante, pointed to a picture of Marx during an interview with investigators and said that her husband had him killed. That marriage to him must have been terrible because when he died, she was singing like a bird. Oh, child. (laughs) Look, this is why I'm not built for organized crime. I'm not built to be a crime wife or girlfriend. Because if I know anything, I'm singing. I need to be like El Chapo wife. I don't know nothing. Drugs? My husband? My husband is an entrepreneur. But also, Jimmy, as somebody who is not in a crime syndicate, no, you should always keep your mouth shut. And this is the thing that always pisses me off. These crimes go unsolved for 30 years. It's been over 30 years of us looking for this artwork. And your dumbass is going to be, oh yeah, I definitely own two of these pieces of artwork. Oh yeah, I own hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stolen art that the whole country is looking for. I'm the big man on campus. Why would you ever, <laughs> why would you ever out yourself like this? It makes no sense. I don't understand criminals who commit crimes and then brag about them and then are confused when they're either prosecuted or dead i don't understand yeah and what's not clear so there have been no definitive links to the museum heist and no convictions for the robbery so it it could also be true that jimmy just had a big mouth and a big imagination and wanted it to seem cool. I've seen that in other cases too, where somebody is bragging about a robbery or a murder, knowing they did not have anything to do with it, or they want it to seem important or powerful. I have also seen the same thing. And one of my favorite phenomenon is the way that they break down and cry when they get in that interrogation room and the police are putting their pressure on them and police are showing them their text messages where they're bragging about this. And all of a sudden, A puddle. A weak individual. Right. All bark and no bite. All bark, no bite. And it is so stupid to me because the reality situation is, who do you think you're impressing? You're not impressing me because my butt is going to go report you to the police. If someone ever came to me and started bragging about a murder, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to pull up my phone. I'm going to start secretly recording you. The second thing I'm going to do is upon exiting the premises... I will be going to the closest police station. The number one way criminals get caught is being stupid and being cocky. And I don't understand why they do it. (laughs) So with all that, friend, what are your other thoughts on this? Because I, like thinking about these theories, I am really torn in between this mob versus wealthy art collector theory because there is, there's some little tidbits some little Easter eggs that are pointing to the mob's involvement in this. But also I'm thinking about the fact that they did not kill these security guards. And I would think that if the mob were involved, they don't really care about taking a life, especially a man's life. I think sometimes when it's women and children, they, some of them do try to stay away from that. But if it's just two men they they don't really have a problem with doing that. So the fact that they, did not kill or harm these security guards, especially since they saw their faces, is what makes me think that it was just a wealthy art collector that was like, I just want the art. Don't kill anybody. Don't hurt anybody. Just get me the art. What are you thinking? I 100% agree with you. It's definitely interesting to me because I also am of the opinion that a lot of people in the mob, there is still some honor amongst thieves, you know? And they do tend to leave women and children alive. That's not usually their MO. But yeah, I do feel like if it was mob related, there's nothing stopping them from killing what is essentially two random men. I do feel like if it was mob related that there 100% would have been no witnesses. There wouldn't have been an ability for anybody to provide a sketch at all. Even if it is the sketches that we're looking at right now. No witnesses. No witnesses. At least that's what all the mob shows I watch say. I don't know if that's the reality because I don't know anyone in the mob, but that's that's reality that media has painted for me. Yes. Every mob show I have ever watched has told me no witnesses. And if you talk, you swimming with the fishes, which is why I'm confused as to why Jimmy was talking. (laughs) He wanted to swim with the fishes, I guess. Right. I'm definitely of the opinion that it was just a person who wanted this artwork. And I think about that for multiple reasons. Because the selection of artwork was so curated and it was so specific, there was an era about it. There was these individual, I'm going to say priceless, but clearly they have a price tag on them, works of history. I think it is perfectly fair for somebody to be, in a lot of ways, jealous of the library that Isabella had curated for herself. I could very much see that, but a theory that I kind of have is that this was an inside job and it might not be the actual security guards that were tied up and held at gunpoint. These are just the points that make it feel really interesting to me is you came through the employee entrance, you knew to take the VCR tape with you, so you knew that that was somewhere somewhere you felt so confident to be in the museum for 81 minutes. That's a long time to be in a heist. And even if they did leave at 2.30, how do you know that somebody's not coming at 3 a.m.? How do you know that the next person who shows up won't be there until 7? And the biggest piece of that, and the biggest reason I feel this way is because Isabella had these very strict outlines and rules for her museum. And, I think that maybe somebody got a little greedy, somebody got a little annoyed about the way that she had set things up, and everything that she had planned and envisioned for her museum, and they chose to take that away from her. So that just makes me feel like this was some kind of inside job. And I don't necessarily think that the security guards are involved, i.e personally think it's fair to say at this point it's been 33 years if they were involved, there would be something tying to them at this point. and I say that because you found a tie to the mob, you found a tie to this other thief you found a tie here there and everywhere but you haven't found a direct tie to the security guards. I'm more inclined to believe in their innocence at this moment if I'm ever proven wrong, I will accept that and put on my gray hoodie and prepare to give my YouTuber apology about it. And I don't for half a second believe that that artwork is still in the U.S. of A. Probably not. I don't. I don't believe that for half a second, especially if they're talking about how easy it would have been to get it out of the U.S. of A. There's no way it's staying here. Yeah. And I will say, according to one of the security guards, Rick Abbott, Even as of a few years ago, they were never ruled out as suspects. But I agree with you. I agree with you that I don't think they were involved. I just think they were negligent, but I don't think they were involved. Right. I think they were. Do we know how old these security guards were when they were working? Rick was definitely young. He was a self-described hippie, as you'll be able to tell by the long hair. So I'm sure that he was not, not that he wasn't taking his job seriously, but that he probably did not expect something like this would happen. It was just, oh, I'm just gonna sit around for eight hours for this night shift. And the other security guard brought his trombone. So yeah, I'm sure neither of them were expecting this kind of thing to happen. Right. And I just asked that because it seems like, you know, they're, People in their let's be generous and give them their mid twenties, right? I'm sure the worst you think is going to happen in the art museum is that a painting's going to fall or come to life. <laughs> exactly, you know, um, might start talking to you a little bit, have a conversation about the good old days of 1742. But <laughs> um, but you don't anticipate to be held at gunpoint at your job but they're never going to be ruled out as a suspect. And I had a friend who's now in law enforcement and is trying to get into investigations. Um, He's getting moved into the cold case department, which is a good start. Unless they can rule you out, you will always be in. So they will always be a suspect until they can rule them out because just because they haven't found a connection that makes them responsible They haven't found a connection to rule them out either. That's actually why cold cases sometimes will have hundreds of thousands of suspects because you can't rule anybody out. So now everybody's a suspect. Guilty until proven innocent. Unfortunately, with interrogations and with the police, that's definitely how they look at it. Your court system will tell you otherwise, but the police look at you as guilty until proven innocent and listeners tell us your theories that you may have about where this artwork is who might have been responsible we want to hear from y'all if you think there's a piece hanging up in your grandma's living room say something any other thoughts friend nope that's all i have thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode I'd also like to thank the Gardner Museum website, as well as the Smithsonian, for providing most of the material for this episode. And again, if you'd like to check out photos related to this case, follow us at Criminalish Podcast on Instagram. Listeners, if you like what you hear, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to the criminal podcast. And if you're listening on Spotify, feel free to leave any comments or questions. As always, stay nosy, my friends. Bye, everyone. Bye.